Morning, everyone. Uh, fantastic to be here. And uh, what we're looking at this morning, I think, is just some of the most, uh, one of the most profound and wonderful, incredible things that you, you can ever um, look into. And so I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God that uh, He'd open our eyes and our hearts uh, as we look into that together. Let me just put this up. Sam's a little shorter than me. <laughs> Let's pray. Oh, Father, please help us now to see and to know deeply the truths of this passage, uh, the beautiful, life-changing truth uh, that it contains. And please let us go away changed, changed forever. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, before I was a Christian, I was haunted by guilt. I felt guilty uh, pretty much all the time. Not because I had a warped perception of uh, the world and felt that I was guilty when I hadn't actually done anything wrong. See, that's possible. No, that wasn't me. No, I felt guilty because I had done things wrong. I knew I'd done things wrong and those things rubbed against my conscience so that my conscience was regularly raw and frayed. Now, by some people's standards, the things I'd done wrong were not terribly bad things. But by other people's standards and by my conscience's standards, I knew they were terrible things. And so I felt guilty because I was guilty. Not that I understood all this at the time, it wasn't until I became a Christian and was able to look back that I understood more of what I was feeling and why I was feeling it. But what do you do with guilt? What do you do with guilt? The guilt that sits inside like that heavy lead ball just turning slowly in your guts. It's terrible. That feeling of being stained, dirty, unclean inside. How do you get rid of it? Because it's not out there, it's in here, it's in me. Now it is possible to be someone who is guilty, but who no longer feels guilty. It is possible for your conscience to be dulled if you consistently go against your conscience. See, conscience is like a knife. Each time you do something wrong or you're about to do something wrong, your conscience gives you a little loving cut. Ah, you know that little healthy jolt of pain that says, don't do that. That's wrong. Or you do the wrong thing and you think, ah, oh, I've done the wrong thing. The cut of conscience, a very healthy thing. But it's possible to sharpen your conscience or dull it. See, every time you listen to your conscience and obey it, you sharpen your conscience. As you listen to God's word, your conscience becomes aligned with God's word. And each time you obey your conscience that's aligned with God's word, it becomes sharp, sensitive to what's right and what's wrong and what God has said is wrong. And it steers you well clear of those things. Each time you obey your God-aligned conscience, it's like sharpening the knife of your conscience on a whetstone. Obedience to conscience. Shh. Obedience to conscience. Shh. Obedience to... Shh. Each time you listen to your conscience and obey it, you sharpen the knife of conscience, which means the knife of your conscience becomes very sharp. It cuts very easily. It's very sensitive to tell you what is right and wrong. It's a very healthy thing to have a God-aligned, razor-sharp conscience. But it's also possible to dull your conscience. Each time you go against your conscience, it's like taking the knife of conscience and grinding it against concrete. Grind it against concrete. Do it again. Do it again. And after a while, the knife of conscience doesn't cut anymore. If you consistently go against your conscience in a certain area of your life, then that sin, that wrong, no longer seems to feel wrong to you. It no longer cuts with the pain of doing the wrong thing. You become numb to that sin. Very, very dangerous thing to consistently go against your conscience. See, it is possible for people to be guilty of doing sinful wrong things, but not feel guilty for doing those. But can I say, I think for most of us, that's not the problem. I think for most of us, the key issue is, 
how do I deal with my guilty conscience? How do I get rid of this terrible feeling in me? A number of years ago, my wife Megan served up this uh, beautiful pork roast with um, amazing fatty crackling, and I went to town. You know? Some parts say that I was a glutton. In fact, anyone watching would have said I was a glutton. I, I just gorged on it. Not just the succulent, juicy meat, but I slurped down the beautiful fat and crunched on the delicious crackling. And I went to bed. You know when you go to bed just like fat and happy and content? And two hours later, I woke up and bolted to the bathroom and spewed and spewed and spewed. And for the next six hours, I vomited and vomited and vomited. And then for the next three days, I felt absolutely rotten. Now, I don't, I don't know the science of all these things, but basically I think I had poisoned myself with fat. There was so much fat in my body, my body could not process the amount of fat was in it. It was like a hangover, but not from alcohol, a hangover from fat. Now, so don't be a glutton. Guilt, guilt's very much like that. It makes you feel so rotten and sick and your body just can't seem to break it down. You try to wish it away. You try to pretend it isn't there. You tell your mind, it's not real, it's not important. You try to justify your behaviour in your own mind. You make resolutions, I'll never do that thing again. You try to distract yourself by doing other things, thinking other things, but the guilt remains, the heavy lead ball turning slowly inside. What does our world have to offer? It says, forgive yourself. Cut yourself some slack. Easier said than done, isn't it? That thing lodged inside, unless somehow the things I've done wrong are dealt with, the guilt tends to remain. Our world says, make amends. Helpful. But often we can't make amends or won't make amends. And even if we do, it doesn't erase the things that we've done. Or often what we do is we try to take the guilt and just push it down, push it down, ignore it. Now, I'm no psychologist, but that can't be healthy, can it? Over time, the feelings of guilt may lessen, depending on how serious the things we've done are, but then we do something else wrong. It's in us, like that fat our bodies can't break it down and deal with it. It's stuck in us and it makes us sick. That's our sin. That's our wrong. It's in our hearts, it's in our minds and it's stuck there. We feel guilty because we are guilty. We feel unclean because we are unclean. We feel stained because we are stained. The subjective experience of feeling guilty is usually testimony to the objective reality, I am guilty. And so the solution we desperately need must deal with the wrong we have done. Deal with the unclean things we have done, the objective guilt, in order to truly cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Which brings us to our passage, which is answering the question, what gets the job of dealing with sin done? Because that's the only solution for the guilty conscience. Having our sin, our wrong, dealt with and cleansed once and for all. You see, this is a big concern through these chapters in, in Hebrews 8, 9, 10, but particularly chapter 10. The guilty conscience. Have a look. Chapter 9, verse 9. The Old Testament sacrifices were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. Chapter 9, verse 14. Christ's blood, however, cleanses our conscience from acts that lead to death. Chapter two, uh, 10, verse 2. If the Old Testament sacrifice had worked, then the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. Chapter 10, verse 22. 
Because of Jesus, we can have our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Do you see it again, again, again? We need our conscience cleansed, and the only way our conscience can be cleansed is through a sacrifice that actually deals with our sin. And that's the particular focus here in chapter 10. What gets the job of dealing with our sin done so that it actually deals with our guilty conscience and done in such a way that it never needs to be done again? So you don't want it to be like um, when you go to lots of physios or chiros. Now, no offense, physios or chiros. I love you. I use you all the time. But, you know, you go to the physio or chiro and they crack, 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 massage, 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 and you think, oh, yes, loosey-goosey, loosey-goosey. And you walk away and three hours later you're like, oh, tightening back up, tightening back up. And the pain hasn't gone because they didn't actually fix the core problem. And so you need to keep going back again and going back again, and going back again. Now, it's a good business model, isn't it? Don't actually get the job done, so the consumer needs to keep coming back. Whereas, the good physios and chiros amongst us actually deal with the problem, actually get the job done. They fix you. What actually gets the job done in dealing with our sin, and done properly so it never needs to be done again, and done in a way that cleanses us of a guilty conscience. We see the writer to the Hebrew beginning to answer this question in the first four verses of chapter 10, and his first answer is this, not the Old Testament animal sacrifices. When it comes to dealing with our sin, the Old Testament animal sacrifices do not get the job done. Verse 1, chapter 10, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never By the same sacrifices repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. When it comes to dealing with our sin, the Old Testament sacrifices do not get the job done. Do you see? The same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, never, can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. Verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The Old Testament sacrificial system set up by God, used by the Jews for 1,400 years, does not take away sins and so does not cleanse our conscience and enable us to draw near to God. The Old Testament sacrificial system does not get the job done. Now, it does get a job done, a very important job, the job for which God intended it. It doesn't get the job of dealing with our sin done, but it does get the job of verse 1 done. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Do you see, the job of the law, the job of the Old Testament sacrificial system as a core part of the law was not to deal with sin. No, the job of the sacrificial system was to be a shadow of the good things coming in the new covenant, a sketch of the more wonderful realities that are coming with the coming of Jesus. The Old Testament sacrificial system did have a job to do and it did that job perfectly and the job was to point to Jesus, the one who would come and who would actually truly deal with sin. The the realities in the Old Testament of the temple and the priesthood and the sacrificial system are just shadows pointing forward to the greater reality of the true temple priest and sacrifice that is to come. But the Old Testament sacrificial system didn't get the job of dealing with sin done. Look again at the second half of verse 1. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. 
It's impossible for the bloods of bulls and goats to take away sins. The writer says you can tell that the Old Testament sacrificial system was not actually able to deal with sin because if it had, they would have stopped making sacrifices. If the sacrifices had actually worked and the worshippers had been truly cleansed from their sins, they would have no longer felt guilty for their sins and so they would no longer have had to come back and offer another sins. Which shows that sin was not actually dealt with by the sacrifices. Verse 3 says that the sacrifices are actually an annual reminder of sins. And he's particularly thinking about the Day of Atonement sacrifices, the big day of sacrifices for the Jewish nation. The fact that the sacrifices need to keep being offered says to me, if I'm an Old Testament Jew, I'm a sinner who cannot come into the presence of the Holy God, I'm guilty. Because verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Imagine this. You've got a leaky roof. So you employ a handyman to come over and fix it, and they work on it, and they work all day, and they work all day, and they work all day, and you think, how much is this going to cost me? And then they finally come down, and they say, job's done, mate, and they go. And then it rains, and it leaks again. Oh. So you call them up, they come back, they fiddle around on the roof for two, three hours, they come back down, job's done, mate, and then they go away. And then it rains again. Come back again on the roof, come down, job's done, mate, go and it rains. What's the problem? The job is not done. <laughs> They're not getting the job done. And the fact they need to keep coming back just reminds you the job is not done. There's still a leak that needs fixing. The Old Testament sacrificial system graciously set up by God enabled sinful Israel to live in the presence of the Holy God. Remember God's bee tent, his palace, in the midst of their little tents? Making animal sacrifices for their sins enabled them to, in some sense, draw near. But the Old Testament animal sacrifices never really fully enabled people to come into the presence of the Holy God because they never really, truly, actually dealt with our sin. It was a shadow looking forward to a greater reality, a reality where the job actually gets done and sin is dealt with and our conscience is cleansed. And that reality is the coming of Jesus. Now, these, the original audience needed to hear this. Do you remember? They were in danger of turning away from Christ and turning back to Judaism. They were Jews, being converted to Christianity, and yet were being persecuted. It was difficult to be a Christian, not as difficult to be a Jew. They were tempted to turn back to being a Jew, turn away from Jesus, back to the Old Testament animal sacrifices. And the writer of the Hebrew is saying, whatever you do, don't go back. Don't go back. You let go of Jesus, you lose everything. If you go back to the sacrificial system, you are going back to a system that cannot get the job done, whereas Jesus has done it once and for all. A reality where our, our conscience is actually cleansed. Don't go back. Now, doesn't this speak boldly to the religions of our world? See, people will do almost anything to try to cleanse themselves from a guilty conscience, won't they? And much of what the religions of the world are about are rituals that promise to cleanse you of your guilty conscience. It comes in all different forms, but the goal is the same, to cleanse me of my guilt and to cleanse me of my guilty feelings. And so, year after year, people go to the Ganges River and wash and watch in order to be cleansed from their sins. And go to Mass week after week to re-sacrifice the body of Jesus for their sins. And go to the confessional again and again to confess and light candles and do penances and whip themselves and cut themselves and hang themselves on crosses and fast and make pilgrimages 
and do good things to try to make up for their sins and make prayers and make offerings and much religion and much religion that calls itself Christianity is actually ancient Judaism. Endlessly repeated rituals trying to cleanse the guilty conscience but it never actually gets the job done. Trying, trying, trying but never succeeding to actually wash away the shame, wash away the guilt and the guilty feelings. Religious rituals cannot get the job of dealing with sin done, whereas Jesus has. Which is where the preacher goes next. Jesus actually gets the job done once and for all. Verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. When Jesus came into the world, that is when God became a man, God the Son, a man, coming into the world, he said, verse 5, and the words the writer of the Hebrews puts into the mouth of Jesus in verse 5, 6 and 7 are from Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, which is very appropriate because that section of Psalm 40 is the words of the ancient Israelite king and Jesus is the true and ultimate king of Israel. Psalm 40, where it comes from, is broken in two halves, thanksgiving and lament. This comes from the thanksgiving part of the psalm, and is particularly the words of the Old Testament Israelite king saying, I submit to you, God. I am obedient to you, God. A body you have prepared for me in which I want to be obedient to you. And these words in Psalm 40 have in their background the failure of the first king of Israel. You might remember King Saul. You might remember King Saul, who instead of being obedient to God, focused on making animal sacrifices, and so was disobedient to God. God's angry, sends the prophet Samuel to rebuke the king. This is not the sort of king you want, King Saul, a king who is focused on making sacrifices, but is disobedient to God. No, no, what God wants is obedience, not sacrifice. That's the background of Psalm 40. And so in Psalm 40, verses 4 to 6, you get the words of the king saying, I'm not like King Saul. No, no, I want to be a king who worships God by obedience. Obedience, not sacrifice and offerings. So even in the Old Testament, it was recognized that sacrifice is useless without obedience. The most basic thing that God wants is obedience, not sacrifice and offerings. And the king, speaking in the words of Psalm 40, states this. But the author of the Hebrews says, you know those words that the king spoke in Psalm 40? Ultimately, these are the words of Jesus. Yes, the king said those things back then, had them in his heart. But the ultimate fulfillment is in Jesus, the true and ultimate king of Israel. Psalm 40 verses 6 to 8 are ultimately about what Jesus would do. Jesus, the great king who would come and submit himself to his father's will and be obedient to him. And do you notice the logic through these verses? The contrast, not this, but this, not this, but this. Verse 5, not this, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but this, but a body you prepared for me. The willing obedience of Jesus is what God actually wanted, not sacrifices. Same verses 6 and 7, not this, but this, not this. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased, but this. I have come to do your will, my God. The willing obedience of Jesus is what God actually wanted, not sacrifice. Do you see the contrast? God has not desired sacrifice and offerings. But in contrast, what God wanted was the willing obedience of his son, Jesus. 
And in verse 8 and 9, the writer to the Hebrews spells out what this means. First he said, Sacrifice, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were in accordance with the law. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. He sets aside the first, sacrifices, to establish the second, the obedience of Jesus. Sacrifices, the sacrificial system, is set aside, abolished by the obedience of Jesus. Sacrifices are abolished because the one true sacrifice of Jesus come in obedience to his Father. Because, verse 10, And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ once and for all. Because of the willing sacrifice of the body of Jesus in obedience to his Father, he makes us holy once and for all. Once and for all. The sacrifice of Jesus in his death on the cross is the grand expression of his obedience to God and by that sacrifice, once and for all, we are made holy. Pure, perfect, sinless, righteous, in God's sight. Jesus gets the job of dealing with sin done. And it's not the animal sacrifices that get the job done. And it's not even the sacrifice of merely a human who gets the job done. It's the sacrifice of a human who is God that gets the job done. The sacrifice of the God of infinite worth is enough to pay for the sins of all humanity for all time, the sacrifice of the perfectly obedient king. God the Son in obedience to his Father, giving his body as a sacrifice to take away all sins, once and for all. The Old Testament animal sacrifices were a shadow that pointed to that reality. Imagine being back then. Imagine what it's like. You sin, and so you go to the temple with your sacrifice. What do you see? You see frightened animals everywhere. You see priests taking knives and slitting throat. You see bloodshed. You see blood sprinkled. You could smell the blood. You could see the blood. You could smell the meat cooking. All those people bringing all those animals in order to be killed. When you went to the temple to make a sacrifice, it cried out to you, you are a guilty sinner before a holy God. Blood needs to be shed to be, for you to be forgiven. There needs to be a sacrifice in your place, a substitute, a death died that you deserve to die. But what all that was actually about was looking forward to the day when God the Son would come and in willing obedience to his Father, he would be that sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice once and for all. He dies, his blood shed. He dies the death we deserve for our rebellion. He dies as the substitute. And the death, his death, is the death of the perfectly obedient king, the death of God the Son. And so it actually cleanses us from our sin once and for all. Imagine one day um, I say to a family, oh, we're going to eat dinner on the lounge tonight and watch TV. Now, we do that once in a while. Mostly we like to sit around the table and talk when we have dinner. But it's a treat, so let's go sit around, sit around and, and on the lounge and watch TV. Um, but it's roast dinner, and I'm challenged when it comes to eating things off my lap. And so I sit down to this beautiful roast dinner, potatoes and gravy all over it. A bit of a roast theme tonight, <laughs> this morning, gravy all over it. And, and I sit down, and first... First cut, first stab, 
the whole meal slides off. Whole meal slides off onto the lounge. Gravy everywhere. And so you scoop it, scoop it off and mop it and try to clean it. But the stain, it's there and you, I just can't get it out. So what do I do? Stick a cushion over it. And, and then the dog knocks the cushion away. Stick the cushion back. And then day after day, putting the cushion back in place to, to, to cover up the stain. People are coming over. Three cushions over in, in that section of the lounge. Um, I could keep doing that, <laughs> but what do I actually need? I actually need a professional stain remover to come in and do something magical and cleanse the stain once and for all. See, the Old Testament sacrificial system, poor illustration, but the Old Testament sacrificial system in one sense was cover the stain, cover the stain, cover the stain, sacrifice again, sacrifice again, sacrifice again. But Jesus, the one it pointed to, is the one who actually comes and removes the stain cleanses it wide and clean once and for all. This is what the Old Testament sacrifices were preparing us for. Jesus gets the job of dealing with sin done. In verses 11 to 14, we come to the climax where the writer contrasts the unfinished with the finished. The unfinished work of the priests who had to keep offering sacrifices because they never actually took away sins versus the finished work of Jesus where he actually deals with sin once and for all. And it's cleverly done by contrasting someone who is standing because their work needs to keep being done with someone who is sitting because their work is finished, is done. Verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The Old Testament priests had to keep standing day after day because the work of offering sacrifices was never done because it never did the job. In contrast, verse 12, but when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God and since that time waits for his enemies to make his footstool. Finality. Jesus has finished his work and so he sits because it's done do you remember on the cross jesus words it is finished it is finished jesus has finished the work and so jesus sat down at the right hand of god in the position of rule and there he waits for all things all enemies to be placed under his feet sitting because his work is done you know, when you've done a hard day's work, you're out, you're building a retaining wall, you're moving blocks and big sleepers, you're shoveling dirt all day, and you finish the work, what do you do? Well, you get a, get a nice drink, you sit in the shade, and you sit. You sit because the job is done. You've been victorious, there's no more to do. And so Christ sat down at the right hand of God because the job of cleansing us of their sin is finished once and for all. He is victorious no more to do and there he awaits in absolute rule waiting for that rule to be made uncontested when all his enemies will be crushed under his feet at the second coming and you see all this summed up in verse 14 for by one sacrifice he made perfect forever those who are being made holy by one sacrifice he made us perfect for all time if our faith is in him he has perfected forever everyone who enter into the new covenant who will believe in him. Perfectly pure and righteous in his sight today, tomorrow, next year, forever. Because Jesus, the perfect forever priest, is also the perfect sinless sacrifice. And so if your faith is in Jesus, then his sacrifice on the cross has dealt with all your sin. Past, present, 
future. And so you stand complete, perfect, holy, guiltless before God in his sight. He has perfected forever those who believe in him. And the final slam dunk, well, the writer of the Hebrews brings us back to Jeremiah 31, which is where we started this section in chapter 8, uh, verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I'll make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I'll put my law in their hearts and I'll write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I'll remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. The new covenant is a covenant of forgiveness. The new covenant is a covenant in which, by Jesus' death, our sins and lawless acts are remembered no more. God forgives them, wipes them out completely. Past, present, future sin, dealt with, done away with, Jesus has done the job. And so, verse 18, when people are forgiven, there no longer needs to be any other sacrifice for sin. It's done. Do you see the finality and decisiveness of Christ's sacrifice? The eradication of sin once and for all for our salvation. Jesus has done the job. There's this old and wonderful hymn that um, some of you are my age or a bit older might remember. Alas and did my Saviour bleed. It goes like this. Alas and did my Saviour bleed. And did my Sovereign die. Should he forsake his sacred head for such a one as I. And then the chorus... At the cross, at the cross, when I first saw the light and the burden of my sin rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight and now I'm rejoicing all the day. But do you hear it? At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my sin rolled away, a load I can't carry. A burden I can't bear, a guilt, a shame that I can't process. But the cross, Jesus once for all, fully, finally, decisively dealt with your sin. If your faith is in Jesus, then the burden can roll from your shoulders because it's fully dealt with. Have you got that burden still weighing on you on your back? Can I encourage you, turn to Jesus right now. Trust that his death for you has done away with your guilt. And that crushing weight of guilt and shame can roll away. And not some of your sin. No, it's all of our sin. Our past, our present, our future sin. Atoned, absorbed, wiped out, cleansed, dealt with. Jesus' sacrifice pays and it pays in full. Another wonderful old hymn and we're going to sing it right after this together. It is well with my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious Lord. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord on my soul. If you don't yet know the forgiveness of Jesus, the complete cleansing, the removal of guilt, past, present, future, can I urge you to trust him, trust that his sacrificial death is enough to cleanse you from all your guilt and sin. And you will know what it is to have the burden of your sin roll away, not in part, but the whole. Nailed to the cross, you will bear it no more. If we could actually truly grasp the wonder of this gospel, our hearts would burst with joy and our love for God would know no bounds. No matter what you have done, no matter what you have become, there is complete and utter total cleansing and forgiveness in Jesus. And before we get to apply this to daily life, can I focus this teaching on one particular group amongst us, those who come from a Catholic background. And this is not because I like to 
pick on things I think are wrong. No, no, there's a couple of reasons it's worth spending time on this teaching for, our, for our Catholic friends. The first is this, that this passage speaks directly to the key teachings of Catholicism. And secondly, we've found it, it's not until those from a Catholic background come to understand how, how totally different it is from biblical Christianity that they're actually able to truly embrace biblical Christianity. So for these reasons, let's, let's think a little deeply about this. See, Catholicism is very much like ancient Judaism. In Catholicism, you have a temple and you have priests and you have sacrifices. In Catholicism, you have a temple. Churches are built like temples with a sanctuary down the front which has an altar in it, a table but called an altar. And in Catholicism, you have priests who make sacrifices, regular sacrifices in the temple at the altar because the Mass is the heart of Catholicism. It's the moment, according to Catholic theology, where the bread and the wine actually become the body and the blood of Jesus. Not just symbols, but actually the body and blood of Jesus. And so in the Mass, what is going on is you're actually re-sacrificing Christ. And so in every Mass, Christ is being sacrificed by the priest in the temple for your sins and the sins of those you love in purgatory. It's Old Testament. And so you need to keep coming back to the Mass to have the sins you've committed since last Mass cleansed by the re-sacrifice of Jesus in the Mass. And keep coming back and keep coming back to keep re-sacrificing Jesus again and again, just like the Old Testament, as if the work were not finished. And do you know what this says about Jesus? You've not done it, Jesus. What you did on the cross was not enough. And it belittles Jesus and robs him of his glory. And so if you've come from Catholic background, wonderfully Catholicism has taught you there is a holy God and you are a rebel, a sinner before the holy God. And there needs to be forgiveness. There must be sacrifice for your sins. There is no forgiveness without sacrifice. But at the critical point, Catholicism spectacularly fails. It fails to understand and teach the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ for all sins so that no sacrifice, other sacrifice is ever again necessary. And so Catholicism cannot actually deal with your sin and guilt but leaves you feeling perpetually guilty. If you're from that background, can I encourage you to turn away from these things and to recognise that Jesus is the sacrifice once and for all and to let the burden of your sin roll away. Now application for all of us. How might I live this week in light of these truths? Let me give you four thoughts. The first is this. When I wake each morning, each morning you open your eyes and when you open your eyes, you are guiltless before God. You are holy and perfected in His sight. You are able to live that day in His presence. And So why don't you remind yourself of that fact? Each morning when you open your eyes, remind yourself, I am right with God. I am not guilty with Him before him I'm, I'm forgiven my sin past present future I can know God I can talk to God I can live in the presence of God wherever I go today because of what Jesus has done for me and nothing can threaten it because he has done it and he has done it once and for all and so every day you can live with the burden of sin rolled away each day as a beloved child of God because of the full and final sacrifice of Jesus that's something you could do each morning when you wake up too when I'm tempted to sin. Remind yourselves of the lengths that God has gone to in order to decisively deal with your sin. Remind yourself that the sinless Saviour died so that your sinful soul can be counted free. 
that God the Son sacrificed himself in order to deal with your sins once and for all. Not an animal, the sacrifice of God the Son in your place. Because when we understand the lengths that God has gone to in order to decisively deal with my sin, it makes me flee sin. If God has done that to deal with my sin, how can I dive back into sin? What do I do when I'm tempted to sin? Remind myself of the lengths that God has gone to in order to decisively deal with my sin. Three. When I do sin, when I actually commit a sin, well, I ask God for forgiveness and I commit to not doing it again. I, I repent. Please forgive me, Lord. Please enable me never to do it again. But I ask for forgiveness, not fearful that God will not forgive me. Not begging God to forgive me in fear that I might not be forgiven because I am forgiven. I will always be forgiven. The sacrifice of Jesus has dealt with my sin already in Christ. And so when I ask for the sins that I, forgiveness for the sins I've recently committed, it's with a sense that I am thankful and already forgiven in Christ, not wondering whether I will be forgiven, but confident of my forgiveness. When I sin, I know that my sin has been credited to the account of Jesus and Jesus has died in my place for that sin. And so I now stand innocent and sinless before God. Now, some might say, then why do you even need to ask for forgiveness if you've already been forgiven and cleansed by Jesus' death once and for all? And in one sense, you'd say, well, yes. I don't need to ask for forgiveness to be forgiven for my sin. See, imagine today I, I commit a bad sin. I, I, I don't ask for forgiveness immediately. I wander outside, a truck hits me before I could ask for forgiveness for that sin. Am I going to hell because I have died with, with an unconfessed sin? No, I'm not going to be punished because I haven't have an unforgiven sin. I haven't asked for forgiveness. For, no, no, no. I have been forgiven once and for all, for all my sin by the death of Jesus. If my faith is in him, my forgiveness is full and complete and not dependent on whether I ask for forgiveness for a particular sin. But if you're a forgiven sinner who understands what God has done for you in Jesus, then what else would you do but say sorry for the things that you have done against your father? If you understood what it took for God to deal with your sin, then what else would you have but a heart that loves God, that keeps saying sorry, that keeps asking for forgiveness, that keeps repenting of sin? If you've grieved your heavenly Father, you turn from sin that grieves Him and know His forgiveness and pleasure afresh. In fact, ongoing confession and repentance um, from sin is part of the good works that flow from faith. Um, part of what it is to be a Christian, the works of a genuine Christian, is they will continue to repent and ask for forgiveness. And if there's no confession of sin and repentance, you have to wonder whether someone is actually really a Christian. But when you do sin and you do ask for forgiveness, you don't ask in fear that you won't be forgiven. You ask confident that you have been forgiven in Christ. His sacrifice has got the job done. Fourth and finally, what about when guilt assaults me? When guilt comes back like a bully to beat you down, what do you do? Remind yourself again that if your faith is in Jesus, then Jesus' death has fully, 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 finally, decisively dealt with all your sin. Remind yourself, I am clean and forgiven before God. My sin atoned for. My sins and lawless acts he will remember no more. After the baptism, we're going to uh, sing these words. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. 
What do you do when Satan tempts you to despair because you're a guilty sinner before the holy God and you deserve judgment? I look away from Satan. We look away from ourselves. We look away from the guilt we feel and we look to our Savior, Jesus, the sinless Savior who died so that our sinful soul could be counted free, who now is seated in glory where he reigns over all things because the job is done. Upward I look and see him there who made man to all my sin. Isn't this one of the most beautiful and life-changing things that you could ever hear? It makes our hearts swell with joy. When it comes to our sin and guilt, Jesus gets the job done. He's finished the work. He has paid the price, which means if my faith is in Jesus, I am clean and forgiven and guiltless in his sight, right with God and able to live in his presence now and for all eternity. And that's the cure for a guilty conscience. Why not take a moment now, spend a few minutes just thinking about this week, how you could let the work of Jesus on the cross for you uh, become even greater in impact in your life. And I'll finish by praying in a moment. Our Father, we thank you so much for Jesus, for his one full, perfect and final sacrifice for all sins. And in his name we pray. Amen.